All right, here we go. Sorry. Uh, my name is Ben. If you don't know me, I, I'm one of the pastors here. Most of you know me, but if you're a visitor, just want you to know who you're uh, listening to. Uh, Chris is uh, normally, he was planning to preach um, today, and I, some of you probably know what's going on with him. Some of you probably don't. He, he got sick, lost his voice, wasn't going to be all the way back. Uh, and I was out backpacking, frankly, in Virginia, <laughs> uh, but getting a few text messages, and I was like, man, I can preach. It won't be from Romans 8 because uh, I don't have time to prepare that. So we're off series today uh, in First Peter, and that's what's going on. Uh, but, but in addition to that, him battling sickness, they also had a, a sudden death of his brother-in-law this week. Um, so I want us to pray specifically for the Sloan family, uh, 11 kids. Now, no, now, now daddy's gone. Um, and so we want to pray for them. We want to pray for Chris's health. Uh, and then, then better news, um, Gina Newton uh, texted me this morning. Some of you guys know Daniel's been battling cancer for the last couple of years, ended up having to have surgery this week, and it went just wonderful. Uh, and she wanted to thank everybody for your prayers for them and let you know that that's going on. She asked me to share that. So there are a lot of different things going on. Let's pray together. Prepare our hearts. Let's pray for these specific things. We'll dive into God's word together. Lord, we come to you this morning from all different emotional states and, and frankly, places in life. And we say that a lot. Lord, some of us, things are really good. Some of us, things are really hard. And Lord, as we think about the needs in our family and what's going on, Lord, I want to pray specifically for Chris's health, pray that he would finish healing and get his voice back. Lord, I want to lift up Lena and all the kids, the Sloan family, who are devastated right now. And I want to pray that you would give them your peace and your strength in a way that only you can. Uh, Lord, there's no like human comfort that can replace what you can do. And so Lord, I just pray that you would move in a amazing, indescribable way in their family and help them, help them to cling to you and to remember that you're good. Uh, Lord, we do thank you uh, for Daniel's surgery and how well it went, and we're rejoicing in that. And Lord, just then, everything else is going on, all these unspoken prayer requests around the room this morning, Lord, meet us where we are. And Lord, help us just to feel your presence as we've already been feeling it, as we've been singing. Lord, help us to, to meet you right where you are and, and Lord, to feel your presence afresh and anew this morning as we learn from your word. Lord, do you speak to our hearts and help us to know how much you love us and care for us this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, again, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 2. If you want to turn there, that's great. I'll do a little bit of an introduction. If you don't have a Bible and would like a physical copy, uh, hold your hand up and our ushers would be glad to hand you a copy that you can uh, read from there. Of course, the stuff will be on the screen as well. So it's just kind of what, whatever's the easiest way for you to follow along in God's word. Uh, but we're in 1 Peter. And this is a book, if you don't know anything about 1 Peter, um, it's really written to uh, several different churches who are suffering and undergoing persecution. So in the very first verse, and you don't have to turn there with me, but in the very beginning of the letter, and again, this is the apostle Peter, the guy that walked with Jesus, and he says this, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he lists these places in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Um, so that's who he's writing to. So probably what would have happened is they would have really originally gotten this letter, right, from the apostle Peter, and if you follow where those places were, they're all kind of in what would now be modern-day Turkey. 
But it would have been like you would have gotten the letter at the first one. They would have probably read it together as a congregation, made their own copy of the letter, and then they would have passed it on. The guy that brought it would probably go to the next place. And these would have kind of formed a route. And so it would have gone from Pontius then to Galatia, then to Cappadocia, then Asia, and Bithynia. So that's who this is originally to, is all these little congregations, and they're undergoing suffering. Okay, so we don't know for sure, but we think the suffering is probably related to uh, the first great persecution that happened in early Christianity when Nero was the emperor. So this is about 64 AD, and Nero was a bit of a loony bin. If you know anything about Nero, he... uh, he at one point got nervous that maybe his mom was trying to take him out. He killed his mom. Uh, at one point, he got nervous that his wife was trying to take, it, take, take him out. He killed his wife. Um, and the rumor is that we don't know if it's completely substantiated, but maybe true, is that he set the fire that burned down part of Rome and then blamed it on the Christians. We don't know for sure that he set the fire. We do know that the Christians were blamed. And so the early Christian church begins to undergo persecution. And it's the first, like they had done that from the beginning, but this is kind of, it intensified, right? And so Peter writes this letter. We're going to look at two verses today. Peter writes this letter into that situation to try to help these Christians who are dealing with the the situation being what it is. And I, I find the letter especially helpful especially as we find ourselves somewhat increasingly in an embattled state with larger culture. These words are very pertinent to that sort of situation. So, I mean, that's happening to us all the time. In a lot of ways, we're not very embattled. We're still in a great place in America. But in other ways, we feel the culture, the wider culture changing and being more and more against Christian ideas. And so sometimes it's like, how do we live in the midst of that? And so Peter's got some words for us this morning. Uh, So I want us to read together now. Again, we're going to be in 1 Peter 2, and let's just look at verses 11 and 12. That's all we're looking at. And here's what it says. It says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Okay? What I want to point out to you this morning is really two main ideas. The first is that we need to and we are called to evangelize our own hearts right? To evangelize is the same root word as the gospel. We need to gospel our own hearts. So Peter says here, I urge you as sojourners exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So there's a war going on, and Peter's telling us, you need to fight that war. And and I'm saying the way that we fight that war is by gospeling our own hearts, okay? And then the second big idea here is the second verse in verse 12, and he says, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. When he says Gentiles there, he's referring to unbelievers. He's kind of using Gentiles as a code word. So keep your conduct among those who don't know Jesus honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So he's wanting them to live in such a way that God's going to be glorified because of the way that they're living. And so he's also calling us 
to evangelize others. So the, the title of this sermon is really Evangelizing Ourselves and Others. That's where we're going, okay? And this is, um, this is very pertinent to me personally because I struggle, uh, and I've admitted this before, and maybe you would find this shocking and helpful, I struggle at times with doubt, and I'm a pastor, right? And I'm, I'm betting whether you admit it out loud or not, at time, from time to time, you struggle with doubt, you struggle with sin. Sometimes you ask yourself, is this all really real? And when that happens, you need to gospel your own heart, right? I also find this relevant because I've known um, now, you know, at this point in ministry, I've been in ministry a long time, a lot of friends, a lot of people that I have personally discipled and spent time with who no longer walk with Jesus, right? And so what, what do we do? We got we to gotta, we gotta work on our own hearts. Uh, we, we want to keep ourselves in the faith because that's the reality, okay? So that, that's where we're going, uh, and I want us to see that in the text. So we're going to deal first with identity. That's kind of the first big point here. And, and as we talk about gospeling our own hearts. So the first big part is just this word beloved. So he says beloved, which means dearly loved people. So Peter calls these, he, he may have personally known these people. He may have not. But this, this truth is throughout the Bible that God dearly loves us. And we can say that so often in Christianity that it can lose its power if we're not careful. But let it land on you again afresh and new this morning. When God thinks about you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're, if you're his son or his daughter, when he thinks about you, he loves you. It, it doesn't matter how screwed up you may feel. It, it doesn't matter if you're like the God forgive me for the 10 millionth time place. And you go, I don't know how he could possibly love me. He loves you. You're his dearly loved son or daughter. I've, I've told this story before, but it always impacts me so, um, like, directly when I think about it again. But you, you remember at Jesus' baptism, Jesus goes out, and it's this beautiful Trinitarian moment, right? Because you've got the Son of God. You hear a voice from heaven the Father, you, it says the Spirit descended as a dove. I don't know if that means that there was actually a dove on Jesus or just it's describing like as a metaphor, like the Spirit descended on him like a dove would descend if it landed. I don't know which it is. Um, but Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and then this voice from heaven about Jesus, this is my dearly beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Here's the truth. If you've been adopted into the family of God, God speaks that same thing over you. This is my dearly beloved son. This is my dearly beloved daughter in whom I am well pleased. Not because you've kept a perfect record, but because as we've been talking about the last several weeks in Romans 8, God adopts us into the family. He makes us sons as as Chris preached last week, we, we gain sonship. And because of everything that Jesus has done, God feels about us great affection. He doesn't just love us. He also likes us. He's really all, he likes you. That's your identity. 
And, and when we're struggling, we just sometimes need to remember that. that I, this was also a recent way that this idea hit me. I, I took a class last year that was all about like theological implications of our physical bodies, which is something we don't sometimes think about. Like, what does the Bible say about our physical bodies? And one of the writers I was reading said this. He said, have you ever thanked God for your body? It was a weird thought. Because I think most of us think about all the things about our body we wish were different. Like, like, you know, I'm thankful for it, but I really wish there was a little less here and a little more here and wish my hair grew some places that uh, used to grow and didn't grow some places that now grows, you know. And uh, I wish when I got on the scale it had a different number on it. But even as I was out on the trail this week, and there's everybody else's pace, and then there's the bend pace. I'm always bringing up the rear on backpacking trips. But I'm so thankful that I still have the ability to, like, put on a pack and walk a trail. God has given me this body as a gift. And the writer said, have you ever just seriously thanked God for, for the body that he's given you? That it's not just, you're not just your soul. You're a soul and a body. You're a whole package, and God made you the way that he made you on purpose, and it's all a gift. And he loves every part about you. And that's just what Peter says right at the beginning. He just says, I just want to remind you, church, that you're beloved. That's part of your identity. That's who you are. You're a dearly loved child of God. And then he says the second thing about our identity, and look at this again in verse 11. Beloved, and then he calls us two names. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. So he says, you are, if you're in Christ, you are a sojourner and you're an exile, right? What's he mean by that? An exile, right, is somebody who's no longer in their homeland. They've been exiled. They're now living in a country that's not where they're from. And sojourner is basically the same idea. I'm passing through a land that is not where I'm really from. And Peter says about these Christians, and he's not just talking about them, he's talking about a spiritual reality. He's talking about if you're a follower of Jesus, this world as we currently live in it is not our home. We are exiles, we are sojourners. Uh, the writer of Hebrews picks up on this same idea in Hebrews 11, and he's talking about, in Hebrews 11, he's talking about all these great heroes of the faith who, by faith, like, did all these amazing things. And he says about, about them, he says, these all died in faith, not having receiving, received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak that way make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And if they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So another part of our identity is we're dearly loved children and we are exiles and sojourners in the world that we currently live in. is not the way things ought to be or the way that things will be. And we're from here, but we're really not from here. 
we're concerned about our country and the politics and who's in charge and who's not and the laws that are passed. But even more, we're concerned about a king and a kingdom and a place where we're truly from and a place where we're going. Right? So some of us need to like really ask ourselves, am I more concerned about this kingdom or the kingdom? Because God calls us to be concerned about the kingdom. And in the middle of this congregation, that, or all these congregations that he's speaking to that are suffering, he says, you, you need to understand something. You're loved and you're not from here. And so when things get tough, it's okay. God is still in charge and you're headed to a better place. Okay? So C.S. Lewis said, if I discover within myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We were made for another world. Okay? So we got to remember who we are. Secondly, we got to understand our context. So our context is warfare, right? He says, beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So we are, as believers, in a warfare situation, right? So there, there are three enemies of the believer. I've, you may have heard this before. This always really helps me as I love like grids or charts or, or things that like explain things. Like I'm, I, if you know me, you know I'm all into that. Um, but there's basically three enemies that we all face. We, we face the enemy of our flesh, which we've been talking about the last several weeks. That's any part within us that even though we know Jesus still wants to rebel against him and seek our pleasure in other things. It's anything in the world that seems to go against God and his kingdom. That's the flesh, right? And so we all deal with that. God saves us, but he doesn't completely remove our flesh in this life. He calls us to be sanctified, and we're battling against these inclinations, these, the sin nature that wants to rebel against God, okay? And that's every single one of us, as far as Jesus, we're in that battle. We've been talking about it. Like, so the last two weeks, we've been talking about it. You're, not, you're no longer debtors to the flesh, Romans 8, to live according to the flesh. We're now debtors to the Spirit. Therefore, put to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit. That's what I talked about two weeks ago. Chris came on top of that and added more context to that the Spirit's leading us to do that very same thing. Okay, so that's one enemy is this unredeemed part of me that wants to rebel against Jesus. We're also in a warfare against principalities and powers, Satan, demonic forces that are alive in the world. Our, the way we live in like 21st century Western culture, that almost seems like a throwaway, like not real, but the Bible is telling us it's very much real. Those things are real. And so they're embattled with us as well, against us as well. And then also there's a world system and God, for whatever reason, has allowed Satan to have a manner of authority in this world. And so all the cultures, whether it be American culture, European culture, African culture, Australian culture, Japanese culture, all cultures are affected by principalities and powers. And, and the, the world cultures are not walking in God's ways. And all these things work together. I think it's really interesting. I'd like to understand it even better. But what, what Satan is doing 
is he's often using our flesh, which he knows we're still battling against our flesh, and he's using the, the world to tempt us to walk away from Jesus, to find our satisfaction in things other than Jesus. And so they all three work together. And Peter here says, the passions of the flesh, again, anything that wants to rebel against God, they wage war against our souls. So we're in a battle to constantly place fresh faith in Jesus to find our deepest satisfactions in him and not to indulge the passions of the flesh because when we do that, it, it hits our faith. It hurts our faith. And that's some of what we're doing every single Sunday morning when we gather in this place is, is that we're together praising God. We're again together turning our attention and our affection towards the only one who can satisfy. We're saying, I need this. I need to be reminded of these truths that I already know. I need to do warfare. I need to attack the parts of me that want to rebel against God. And I, I need to fill up the parts of me that see that he is really all that I need. And, and I, I ought, we're, you could say this a hundred different ways, but, but we all have this bentness towards idolatry. We have this bentness to find our satisfactions and things other than God. So maybe I, I started thinking through like how I could go through a hundred examples, but how it impacts me personally. Like there's days when I, I feel like that John Mayer song, you know, like when he says something's missing. He's like, you know, I got all these things, but something's missing. And you felt that way too. And so you're a little depressed and my tendency, if I'm not careful, is to use the things of the world or things of the flesh to help try to fill up that emptiness rather than going to the one who alone can satisfy that emptiness and might make my heart happy. And that would be Jesus. And so it's like, well, I'm going to buy, I'm going to go shopping. Like I'm going to buy something new. That'll give me a little bit of a kick, but that could be idolatry. Or, you know, I'm just kind of, I'm not feeling great. So I'm just going to kind of let my anger go a little more unchecked than normal. And I, I deserve to let my anger go unchecked, right? Because, like, I'm in a bad mood. Somebody upset me. I don't feel right. And so everybody cut me some slack. I can just kind of rage against the machine, so to speak, today. You know, or, or I, you know, I'm enjoying this beer. I might enjoy, like, eight more beers. Because I just kind of don't want to feel like how I'm feeling. And so I'm going to escape a little bit. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let my gaze linger where it shouldn't linger a little longer than I know that it ought to. Because I frankly don't like how I'm feeling and that'll, make me, that'll give me a little kick. All that's idolatry. It's finding our satisfaction in something other than God and what Peter's saying is, it's actually waging war against our souls. Which is incredible. But here, here's what St. Augustine, or you may have heard it, St. Augustine. I think it's pronounced Augustine, but who knows. But he said this. He says, talking about God, thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. 
That, that's the situation. And I, what I want to urge you today is to take the passions, the temptations of the flesh seriously. And again, to basically say what I said two weeks ago, or what Chris said last week, and go, I'm doing warfare to find superior joy in the one that only can satisfy. I'm doing warfare against my flesh. I'm repenting for the hundredth time, and I'm seeking to find fresh faith and joy in Jesus because only he can really satisfy my heart. Okay? So that, that's the first thing. You know, who are we? We're beloved. We're sojourners. We're exiles. What's, this, what's the context? We're in a warfare context, text, all of us. Okay, and then th- what have we been called to? And we've been called to evangelize our own hearts, but we've also been called to evangelize others. So look at what he says now in verse 12. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. Again, that's code for unbelievers in this context. Honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. I'm going to read to you with Ben's slight translation difference that I think gets at the meaning. Keep your conduct among those in the world honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may at the same time see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what's he talking about? Well, one, he's just, he's, he's giving us something that we're not going to be able to escape from, which is in the middle of a culture where we, as, as Christ followers, there are going to be stances that we take. There are going to be things that we believe. There are going to be situations that we're put in that is not going to make us popular with those who don't follow Jesus. And he says that, he, that we, we should live good lives because that we're going to get spoken against as evildoers. And, and I just, I want to encourage you to come to terms with that and be okay with that that there are times that because of your faith in Jesus, because you're following Jesus, those in your workplace, your neighbors, others, maybe even extended family members, they're going to look at you and go, you're crazy and actually you're evil. And, and are we okay with that? See, we can't be good evangelists if we overcare what other people think about us, Right? Because we'll care so much about what they think about us that we'll never actually open our mouth. Because, like, what if I say something that then offends them and then they don't like me? And since my whole identity is not based in what we just said, it's based in Jesus, based in their opinion of you, then you never actually are bold enough to share with them about Jesus because all that matters to you is what they think about you. And so you're not really an evangelist. because you care too much about their opinion and not enough about God's opinion. So we got to come to terms with the fact that we're going to be spoken about as evildoers. But that doesn't, so let me caution us here, because there's some who don't get this, that at the same time doesn't mean that you need to be the brash, angry, like, well, I don't care what they think about me, sort of Christian, as you walk in your life, where you're seeking to try to make enemies everywhere you go. Because that's ungodly either. Uh, also, right? So like, don't, don't base your Christianity, don't base the way that you live off of like some social media 
or newscastery sort of person that seems to hate everybody but himself or herself and who's brash and arrogant and go, yeah, that's right. I like that. They just tell it how it is, but really they're just massive jerks and you only like them because you agree with them. But everybody who doesn't agree with them is like, that guy is awful. That person is awful. That's not what Peter's telling us to do. Don't care what the world thinks about you, but also don't seek to be a jerk. Right? So some of you, frankly, just need to moderate yourselves better on social media. And we all laugh. I mean it really seriously. <laughs> and if you feel like I ever am a jerk on social media, like, please come tell me. I will seek to repent. But we really ought to think about that. Why? Because of the second half of the verse. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? So that as they speak about you as evildoers, they may, again, Ben's translation, they may at the same time see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So let's get down in here. There's a couple ideas about what this means. I'm going to tell you what I think it means. The day of visitation, I think, is talking about the day when Jesus comes again and judges the living and the dead. Okay? So he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when Jesus comes again, it's going to have made a difference in their lives. So some, some interpreters think that what he's talking about is when Jesus comes again, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So some of these people are going to hate Jesus, but they're going to have to fess up in that moment. You're right. I was wrong. I got to praise Jesus because I have to because he's Lord and King, and I really hate him, but I have to. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think what he's saying is as you're embattled with the culture, necessarily because you follow a king and a kingdom and a different ethical code, you're, there's going to be all these bright spots in your life also that everybody can't help but say, man, like, something's weird about them. Like, I hate that they take this stance, but I can't deny that they're loving. And I can't deny that they're trying to seek the welfare of the, the culture and the context God's put them in. Right? So, like, I hate your stance on sexuality, frankly, Christian, but I love the fact that you seem to care for the orphans and widows and addicts. I hate what you think about abortion, but I love that you just threw like an amazing like party. Trunk or treat, you guys like showed up like we could never imagine. Oh, well over a thousand people. That's good news to a culture that may think that the church is kind of like not fun. And here we are all just having fun, eating candy together. What is it that we could do? And this is a missionary question for all of us because we're all called to be missionaries. What are the things that we could do in our life that would look like good news to people that don't yet know Jesus? What are things that we could do with our life that would demand an explanation from people who don't necessarily agree with us, right? So like Peter later says in this letter, he says, um, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, right? So he says, you should be living 
the sorts of lives that people occasionally just come up to you and go, like, what's up with you? Like, why would you do this? Or why would you participate in that? Like, that's amazing. But like, everybody's kind of out for their own, right? Like, why would you do those things? And we should be able to say, because Jesus has changed my life. Our lives should demand an explanation because of how Jesus has changed everything about us. Hugh, Hugh Halter, this one guy said, if no one's ever asking you why you're so different, maybe you aren't so different. And so he encourages us to live lives that feel like good news to everybody around us, that demand an explanation, that people that, so think about going back to the verse, there are people that go, I know you're Christian, and there's some things that, frankly, you believe or do, and I hate those things about you. Like, they really make me mad, but I cannot deny that at the same time, you do all these good things, and you seem to, like, genuinely love people, and you forgive people radically, even when you've been wronged, and, and that's amazing, and I, I don't know what to make of you. And then that leads to a doorway, right, in some of their lives where they start asking questions, and you get to start talking about Jesus. Such that on the day of visitation, some of them are glorifying God. <clears throat> We're always calling you here at 24 Church to two things. Pure lives and boldness to open our mouths and share. It's got to be both. It's got to be lives that glorify Jesus, and we've got to be bold enough to open our mouths and share verbally. Romans is really clear about that. No one's going to get saved by you being a good person alone. You being a, a, per, a living a life that demands an explanation opens a door for then you to speak and share how Jesus has changed your life and how they too can believe and repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. We're calling all of us, all of us are missionaries and followers of Jesus, we're calling God's calling all of us to those two things. Lives that demand an explanation, boldness in sharing, such that some people glorify God on the day of visitation. So we're evangelizing our hearts as we're in this embattled state, but we're also seeking to take every opportunity and evangelize others, right? So I'm just gonna read you like two, two quick quotes here that I think challenge us and get to the heart of this idea that it can't, well, you'll see. Hugh Halter again, he says this. He says, Christianity has lost its place at the center of American life. Christians must learn how to live the gospel as a distinct people who no longer occupy the center of society. We must learn to build relational bridges that win a hearing. That's what I'm getting at. And then Steve Timmis and Tim Chester say it this way. He says, they say, one of the common assumptions when people fail to turn up to church is that we need to improve the experience of church gatherings. We need to improve the product. We need better music, more relevant sermons, multimedia presentations, or engaging dramas. Or we need to relocate to pubs or cafes or art centers. We need cool venues with cool people and cool music. And then they just say, and some of that will work. Some of that's employed here, right? but that can't be all that there is. They say the problem with this approach is the assumption that people will come to church if the product is better. And they say to repeat what we've said earlier in this book, 
and this is all, so it's increased, I think, 85 million Americans have no intention of attending a church service ever. And those figures are growing amongst young people. So invite people to church, that'd be amazing. But don't just invite people to church and let that be your whole evangelism strategy. Live such compelling lives that they demand an explanation. Look for, here's what Henry Blackaby said years ago that I love. God is already working in every single situation we walk into. Have the Holy Spirit awareness to see where God's already working and join God in his work. So God's already seeking to draw people to himself everywhere you go. Have the spiritual awareness to go, how is God working? How can I join him in that work and live and share in such a way that they would be drawn to Jesus and come to know him? Because our hearts are restless until they find our rest in him. They rest in him. And, and that's true of us, and it's true of every single person we run into. The God-shaped hole that needs filling, but the only thing that can fill it is Jesus. We're called to be about that. Francis Schaeffer, in closing, says, one cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis, that's the Greek word, of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community, in the midst of the visible church, a community that the world could see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Our churches have so often been only preaching places with very little emphasis on community, but the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful and must be amongst us so that the world can see and believe. So a few questions just to ponder before we pray. Um, one, just do you know your identity in Christ and is it resting solely in what he says about you and not even what you think about yourself or what anybody else says about you? That's really key. Do you realize you're in a warfare situation? Because we are and there's things that are waging war against your soul and are you fighting that battle or are you just kind of lazing it through and not really thinking about this as a battle? Because it is. Are you seeking to live such an extraordinary life amongst the unsaved that your life demands an explanation? What does good news look like to those that are around you who don't yet know Jesus? Who might God be sending you to? Who should you be praying for? And lastly, have you realized again, maybe this morning, that your heart was made for God and that without him, you truly will be restless and life will have no meaning. Let's pray. Father, I I pray as, in some way these are like thoughts all over the place and in some ways they very much go together. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people who are about the gospel in every single situation we go into, Lord, that we would be seeking to root out the areas of own belief in our own hearts, all the ways that we're seeking empty cisterns, dried up wells that cannot satisfy, 
and wanting to preach to ourselves in such a way where we would go, I, I don't want to keep going back to that well that doesn't satisfy my thirst. And that we would instead find our thirst in you. And God, our, Lord, help us to realize that you've called us into the midst of, midst of whatever situation we're in to be bearers of good news, even as we're spoken about as evildoers. And to want to see you grab people's lives and radically change them. Lord, would you help us in these ways? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you have never made a decision to follow Christ, and God's working on your heart this morning, I'd love to talk with you out in the lobby uh, and pray with you, answer questions about that. Um, but we're going to worship together. So I'm just encouraging you to respond however God's dealing with you. So let's stand. We're going to sing together. And again, please come talk to me out in the lobby if you need to.